Last week, we asked you to write down questions, and I'd like more of your questions. You don't have to write anything down. It's just for you in case at some point during tonight's discussion you feel like there's a question we're not answering. And you'll see in a moment why, because tonight I think I'm doing more talking. We've been very interactive for about four weeks, plus the intro, which was pretty much all of your comments. Tonight, I'm going to start to put things together a little bit, and to get through the amount of information that I'm going to try to cover, I'm going to say, unless you have a huge question of clarification, write it down on the card, because next week we're going to start to answer some of the questions, right? Here's where we've been. For four weeks, we've gone through different aspects of the problem of suffering and evil. We spent some time just first throwing out some explanations that Christians have. We spent some time analyzing free will. Why do we have it? Why did God give it to us? Is it Kind of, if he knew things were going to happen the way they did, why did he go ahead and do it anyway? We then spent some time two weeks ago on natural disasters, and last week we looked at other biblical explanations for suffering. So we spent about four weeks putting together different pieces of the puzzle. The puzzle is nowhere near complete. But what I'm going to do tonight, rather than do what we sometimes do, which is review kind of where we were last week, I'm going to kind of do an overall review. I'm going to walk through the different pieces, and I've taken them now and put them in a little bit of a sequence. And I want you to see how the sequence kind of works and see if these pieces we've been analyzing kind of more zoomed in on them seem to make a little bit of sense as we put them in a larger context. Okay, And that's why as we're going through this, you might say, yeah, but that still doesn't answer this one question, so write that down. That's what I want you to do. So let's dive right into that. We're doing two things tonight. We're going to start to put it together, and then I'm going to talk about what our response should be to suffering, all right? It's not so much a philosophical issue. It's more like, okay, now that we know suffering's going on, whether we understand it or not, what are we supposed to do? What should our attitude be? What biblical guidance do we have in the midst of suffering, all right? We're going to continue to put it together next week. We're going to start responding to your questions. We've gotten a bunch of them, and they were, again, fantastic. You guys are really great in writing, so we can put them all together I'm just going to state a bunch of statements that we've taken from the different talks, and I've just sequenced them for you. I may have a little bit of comment about each of them, but see if you track or you agree that this is kind of some of the things we've said. We start with the first one. God is sovereign and rules over everything. Nothing can happen unless God allows it or causes it. Last week at the end of our time, I asked you to think about that question during the week. Do you believe in the sovereignty of God to the point that nothing that happens could happen unless God allows it or causes it. Struggle with that, if you will, and write something down if you disagree. God created all things. There's our friend the asterisk again, by the way. All right. The reason I put an asterisk there is because I want to clarify what I mean by God created all things. I'm excluding the fact that God created evil. And the reason I believe that is because I don't believe that evil is a created thing. I think evil is, as we've defined it, not doing what God commands or doing what he prohibits. So evil comes about by the very consequence of choice. But it's not like God sat down and said, okay, I'm going to create good things, I'm going to create evil things and see how they compete. It was our choice that introduced evil because evil is just the opposite of God's goodness. God, for his purposes, created humankind with free will. We struggled for a while on what that purpose might be. But either way, God knew that given free will, humankind would fall. Why do I put an asterisk next to God knew? Because there's been two questions raised in this group that I think are very good. The first is, what does it mean for God to know something? 
Does he know things in advance? And I'll tell you that my bias is that because God is not bound by time, he doesn't have future, past, or present. He's at every point all the time. So when we look at new, sometimes we think of it in our sense. Of course, even if it's written in the Bible, it's got to be written in words we would understand. And we understand chronology and sequence. But God is outside of all of that, in my view. Someone also asked, is God's knowledge, is it causative? Like if God knows something, does that thing have to remain there? Well, that would only be true, again, if God was trapped in time or was going to act chronologically or sequentially. What I'm saying is God knows just because he's at every point simultaneously. That's my view. You can wrestle against it. But I'm saying that God knew that given free will, humankind would fall. I don't think that's controversial, that he would probably know that we'd fall. I think most of your controversy is why he would do it if he knew. Next step. God allowed what he abhorred to accomplish what he desired. We've all agreed that God hates evil, but we've all seen that he allowed it because he could have just chosen not to do it at all. And we've struggled with the fact that, well, he must have done it for a reason. So one of the questions that I think remains unanswered, what is God's desire? Why would he do it? And it's hard to grasp that because I think no matter what we think, we may never truly know. Sure, there's theological explanations like he gave us free will because what he really desired in the end was for people to freely love him or people to freely choose him or people to glorify the Son voluntarily. These are all competing ideas of why it's necessary for us to have choice. Maybe he just wanted to see who really would choose him freely without any compulsion, based on faith, sight unseen. Maybe. There's so many different reasons, and I'm going to tell you that after surveying most of them, I'm not sure we're ever going to know which one's the right one, because we would be presuming to know the very mind of God as to why he did this. But we do know that it was done, because we're the proof of it. We exist in this way. Humanity chose to sin, bringing about the fall. As a result of evil, death and suffering entered the world, and the creation was tainted by sin and death. That's pretty much what we came to by the first or second week. This may not be the best of all possible worlds, but I believe it's the best of all possible plans to get to the perfect world. We struggled in here for a while with all the different ideas of what is the best possible world. And I like the commentary of one writer who said, well, we know this can't be the best possible world because heaven's on its way and that's going to be better. Right, but I don't think that's what most of you are saying. What you're really saying is could he have done it a different way? So I use the words, this is the best of all possible plans. The reason I know that is because God, I don't think, would have done a subpar plan. I don't think he's holding anything in reserve. This is the best plan, the perfect plan, for a perfect ending. So this world may not be the greatest thing, but that's because of sin. But it will be better in the next life. As humans, we exercise our free will. And that's where we get the concept of moral evil when we do evil. And we analyze that for a while. Here's what we concluded. A large part of suffering can be attributed to human action. We do evil to ourselves and to one another which causes us all to suffer. So there's a reason for suffering when we look and say, what's the reason for suffering? We also do not act to help one another, which also leads to suffering. 
But not all suffering can be attributed to human action. And that's where we quickly agreed that we do things that are evil to one another that cause suffering. But we moved off that point very quickly because we know that's too simplistic. I mean, sure, that might be even, as C.S. Lewis said, four-fifths of the problem. But it doesn't answer the one that bugs us because not all suffering seems to be attributed to human action. Again, if you're wrestling with a God who has to allow or cause things, every act even has to be allowed by God. You may not agree with that. God also acts. It's not just allowance, but he acts to cause suffering. He brings about suffering. We saw that this way. God punishes through suffering. God disciplines through suffering. He humbles us through suffering. Teaches us through suffering. Prunes those who abide in him through suffering. And other things. But that's one way. And then we have this promise that we're going to look at tonight. God works all things for good for those who love him, even, and I put in parentheses, especially in the midst of suffering. God even works using our evil choices and the acts of evil forces. Listen to that. Make sure you don't miss it. I just said that God can even work through evil choices and, yes, evil agents. This morning in our church, they just recounted the story of Joseph ending up in Egypt, and it's one of the great stories of Scripture where we get to hear from Joseph and record in Scripture why all these things happened to him. And when he finally reveals himself to his brothers, he says to them, you, and I'm paraphrasing, you were basically trying to cause me evil. But God had a different purpose for it. It doesn't mean that what they did wasn't evil. They're not absolved of their moral responsibility. God didn't take away their free will. They did the very evil thing they wanted to do, which is sell them into slavery because of their jealousy. But God still figured out a way, or had always had a way, to work that into the good of a nation and later, actually, to make a place to incubate his entire nation of Israel. So even evil choices and evil forces can be used by God in his plan. We're not going to thwart him. But we said God does not actually commit evil. I want to distinguish. God can send suffering for the purposes I talked about, like punishing and discipline. But God does not do evil. He's not culpable for evil or for the free choices of evil agency. God is not responsible because Joseph's brothers sold him into slavery. That was their responsible. That was their free will that did that. All right, let's keep going. We talked about natural evil, natural disasters being another part of suffering. And I define that as disasters, illness, death, and somebody wrote on their card, what about senseless tragedies? All right, here's what we said. Natural disasters are allowed or caused by God. No difference. Although God has intricately designed the laws of physics and nature, he continues to sustain and uphold all things. He's not an absentee. God can send natural disasters as a punishment. He can allow natural disasters for any reason, but one of the reasons we identified in here was because there are beneficial effects to the laws of nature, and we talked about some of them. We talked about the water cycle and plate tectonics and the kind of the disasters that result from them. 
but they're beneficial. We also said that our free will plays a part. That the actions that we take play a part in the devastation that results, like where we choose to build or how, or whether we cut corners. Or the choices that we make, like living next to a forest fire area. We talked about those things. And that we live in a fallen world with all nature and creation under the curse of sin. We're going to see that verse tonight. So that we don't even know what the, how the earth would be if the taint of sin wasn't around it. Could be any one of those reasons. Last week we began to talk about the expectation of death and illness. Really, that should be the default standard. Why does it surprise us that we're going to die or that we're going to get ill? I think sometimes what surprises us is how. So one of the things we said last week as we started talking about it is, we need to examine our sense of why it is that we find death and illness to be so tragic. What is it about it that makes it so tragic for us? Shouldn't we just expect it? Sometimes what seems senseless to us may have meaning beyond our comprehension. And I'll spare you all the stories that I read in all the different books about what seemed to be senseless tragedy that historically has yielded some of the greatest things that we now know of. We won't know what the purpose is. And that's actually the theme we started to develop. First, for all the suffering that we do perceive, we have no knowledge of what suffering God is preventing. We have no idea. I mean, we might see all this suffering and say, how can you allow this, not knowing how much he is not allowed? Because it's hard to prove what isn't there or even to see it. So I think first, in an act of humility, we should say we have no idea what God has already prevented. God does not owe us any explanation for his plan or for why suffering and evil exists. That was one of the themes we took out of Job last week as we skimmed through it. And... If God gave us an explanation, would we even understand it? Look at Job chapter 38. Just hear these words. When God finally shows up to Job to talk to him after Job has been questioning and his friends have been offering all their great advice as to why this is happening, when God finally answers, here are just some of the words. You've probably heard these before. He says to Job, Who is this that darkens my counsel with words without knowledge? Brace yourself like a man. I will question you and you will answer me. Where were you when I laid the earth's foundations? Tell me if you understand. Who marked off its dimensions? Surely you know. Who stretched a measuring line across it? On what were its footings set or who laid its cornerstone? While the morning stars sang together and all the angels shouted for joy, who shut up the sea behind doors when it burst forth from the womb? When I made the clouds its garment and wrapped it in thick darkness. When I fixed limits for it and set the doors and bars in place. When I said, this far you may come and no further. Here is where your proud waves halt. That's just the opening verses of chapter 38. God asking Job what he knows and how he can ask God these questions. Would we even understand his answer? Think about it. If our God is as infinite as he is, calculating all of the things that will ever interact in all of history to work them out for the plan that he has, could we understand how our one little thing fit into it? Would we even comprehend the mind of this infinite God? It doesn't mean that we shouldn't try. It doesn't mean that we shouldn't try to know him. I've said before, he is transcendent, but he's also intimately personal. 
But there are limits and we should recognize them. I think Job recognized them. In chapter 42, he finally responds. I know that you can do all things. No plan of yours can be thwarted. You asked me, who is this that obscures my counsel without knowledge? Surely I spoke of things I did not understand. Things too wonderful for me to know. You said, listen and I will speak. I will question you and you shall answer me. Job says, my ears have heard you, but now my eyes have seen you. Therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. He recognizes that's about the limits of what he's going to do. Repent and sit in dust and ashes. So in almost every circumstance, we're never going to know why God has allowed or caused a particular circumstance. We've put up so many reasons for why suffering could happen. Starting with the fall and everything all the way through and all the ways that either God is behind it, it could be evil forces behind it, it could be punishment, discipline. It could be all these different things we've analyzed. Humility demands that we not always assert that we know. So we should focus on our response to suffering. All these things that we've talked about, we come back to a place where we go, all right, Maybe these things are too wonderful for us to comprehend. What should our response be? What's our response going to be to suffering? Let's get a little bit more personal tonight rather than just all the what-if proofs. When we find ourselves in the midst of suffering, I'm going to make some recommendations. Here are the attitudes. By the way, these are just, there's more, but I'm going to just suggest these. Faith that maintains a belief in God above all else anticipation of what he's going to do, whether it's through this suffering or just in the end, because we don't know, perseverance, to hang in through it, surrender, to allow God to be God and to realize that it's all in his hands. He's going to allow it or cause it. Either way, if he wanted to prevent it, it was in his hands to begin with. And gratefulness. That one's the hardest. I've suggested also that when we're with others, that are going through suffering. We might, in addition, consider these. Humility, very important. If you read the book of Job, you'll see that his friends had very theological answers that were sound very good. And they were well-intentioned, but they were wrong. At least according to what's going on in the backstory, we know what's happening, and they were just off, off the mark. So just like I said, we may never know the circumstances and why they're happening. We may not understand it. We start with humility. When other people are going through suffering, I would suggest we offer help, certainly. And love for others above self. All right, let's look at some scripture to back some of these things up. I want to just read some things. I just wanted you to see some of the things that I would pull out. I'm not going to have a scripture for every single one of them because I know we'd be here a long time. But I want to point out some pretty good passages that will read into some of the things that we just talked about. So, Romans 8. 18 to 29 is a passage that is a must when we're talking about the subject of suffering. Now that we've gone full circle in a lot of ways, it's time to really hit it head on. Um, If you have your Bible, open it up to Romans 8. If you don't, I brought you a pillow. (laughs) Um, I went looking around to see like where I could find Romans 8, 28. And I found it on this pillow, you know, and I was thinking to myself like, (laughs) if for some reason all the Bibles in the world were burned, I wonder if we could reassemble the Bible from all the tchotchke that's in all these Christian bookstores, you know? <laughs> like if we could like somehow reassemble scripture 
what was in that store? What did you have on your wall? And we would like somehow try to reassemble the Bible. <laughs> Unfortunately, it would be a very s- small, short Bible, and it would be all out of context. So I found it on a pillow. I found it on this little wall plaque. Here it is on a ring that looks like something out of Lord of the Rings, you know? <laughs> so it says, you know, this is the verse. It's, it's Romans 8.28, you know, all things work together for good. And I was thinking, like, like this is kind of interesting. Like, like is, maybe it's a promise ring. Like, you give it to somebody who's single perennially, and they're, like, they're getting really depressed, and you just go, here, have this little ring. Wear it. It says, all things work for good. Don't worry, you know? If you listen to it carefully, it'll go, like, my precious, you know, or something like that, right? Romans 8.28, and here it is, my favorite one, cut up where the head and the tail of the verse are thrown off, and uh, just the middle part, just the good stuff is uh, done. So if you ever wonder why a lot of people trip over this verse, my theory is because we take verses and put them on plates and pillows and cups and mugs and hang them on the wall and actually don't read them in context. So let's, let's skip that and actually read it in context. <laughs> Here's Paul writing in Romans. This is 8, starting at verse 18. I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. Stop there for a moment. That's the kind of anticipation. That whatever we're going through is not even worth comparing to the glory that's going to be revealed in us. The glory that's going to come. The creation waits in eager expectation for the sons of God to be revealed. For the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it, in the hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into glorious freedom of the children of God. There's that concept of sin, decay, death, entering into the creation and tainting it. Notice that it's done by the one who subjected it. It's God himself who has attached that to creation as a consequence of sin. But this word, in hope, like God did that with a hope already in mind, that once sin taints this world, it's going to lead to something, which is our redemption in Christ. And the glory that's yet to come, like even from the beginning, even from the expulsion from the garden. This plan was already in motion. It was already happening in the hope that creation would someday be liberated. Going on, we know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. Not only so, but we ourselves who have been first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. But hope that is seen is no hope at all. Who hopes for what he already has? But if we hope for what we do not have, we wait for it patiently. Anticipation. Hope. Waiting for this to come. In the same way, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. We do not know what we ought to pray, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groans that words cannot express. And he who searches our hearts knows the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for the saints in accordance with God's will. Do you hear how everything we've just read is anticipating a future and a glory to come and everything that is yet to come? So now, in the midst of that context, these words are spoken. And we know 
that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. When you see that verse, and some people always ask about it, how is this situation, this suffering that I'm in right now, going to lead to good? We have to look at the context. It's talking about the good that we are all waiting for. The glory that's yet to come. Whatever you want to say, it's not talking about a present circumstance. We know that in all things, God works for the good. He's going to work all things for a good for all of his people. So in your particular circumstance, wherever you are at that moment, it may not seem like anything good can come of it. But that's only because you're thinking about how it's going to work in your individual life and not how God is going to work all lives and all decisions and everything possible into the good for all who choose and love him. He goes on to say, For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the likeness of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. Now, I'm going to be very carefully tiptoe around the words, for those God foreknew, he also predestined. We're not going to slide into that debate. But I do want to point out that whatever Paul is intending in this sentence to say, there is one part that's very clear, that we are to be conformed to the likeness of his son. Now, we hear that enough times that you might not grasp what it means in this context. To be conformed to the likeness of his son means to become more Christ-like. Maybe you're thinking in terms of the virtues that Christ has, the values that he advanced, the kinds of priorities he had. Yes, but he was a suffering savior. He was somebody who laid down his life for his friends and commanded us and said, true love is this, that you lay down your life for a friend. Not that you might, or that if you were really pushed to, but that you would, that you would expend yourself unto death because that is true love for one another. So if we're going to become more Christ-like over time, maybe never fully in this life, in fact, I'm sure never fully in this life, but if we're going to take that on, it's not just all the attributes we think about, it's the ones including suffering and emptying out yourself even unto death. So the reason those two verses are so important right next to each other is because even if you have the verse that says, we know that God works all things for good, one of the things that he worked out for good is he himself emptying himself out and suffering to death. That's good. That was God's perfect plan. And we, as we become more Christ-like, and I'm not saying all of us have to be crucified, what I'm saying is, even in our suffering, that is part of the good that he's talking about. He works it all out in the end. That's why if you said, God, what could this possibly ever do in your plan? I don't understand it. There's no way this could bring any good. I don't think even if God answered your question, you would understand it. How it was all going to work together. It would just involve an infinite number of calculations and decisions. I don't think our finite minds would handle it. Let me stop there. Any pushback, feedback? Yeah. I'm just trying to think through, like, even in the whole context with it, um, it doesn't say all things are working for the good of everyone. 
Right. It is working for the good of those who love But is this ignoring the issue of suffering for non-Christians? And like just not talking about it? Or is it just saying, well, it sucks to be them, like that's that? Or I think the way I would read it is that people are going to suffer and all stuff's going to happen, right? But in the end, it's going to work out for good for whom? For the people that choose God. Why? Presumably because you just spent all this time talking about how sin will be lifted and we'll be in glory with the Father. So that also means for the people who don't choose or don't get predestined, depending on your view, in other words, the people who aren't with the Father, it's not going to work out good for them. And yes, in part, that could mean that all their suffering working into the equation worked out for the good of those who love God, but not for their own good. Because I, I think there's no way you could characterize what happens to people post-judgment as good if they're not in glory. That's what Paul's belief is very strongly. All right, here's another verse from Paul. We looked at this last week, but I just wanted to point out something that we almost skipped over and somebody asked about afterwards. Do you remember when Paul was talking about the thorn in his flesh? And we were talking about how in the midst of that, he found that God's grace was sufficient for him. So this is 2 Corinthians 12, 7 through 10. And that God was saying to him that, you will be better in weakness that will make you stronger. But we skip over this sometimes. He says, to keep me from becoming conceited because of these surpassingly great revelations, there was given me a thorn in the flesh. If we just stop right there, we go, oh, okay, so God kind of afflicted him a little bit to kind of keep him from getting a little too cocky because he's had all these great revelations of Christ. But the next phrase says, he gave me a thorn in my flesh, comma, a messenger of Satan to torment me. That goes back to that same idea we have that Paul seems to attribute this thorn as something that comes from Satan. And yet the rest of the verse talks about how God is going to use this. One more example of how God can even use evil agency and somehow turn it to good in this particular case, in a way that Paul could see now. So he's lucky that he at least gets to understand why this is going to go on. Most of us probably won't have that luck to be able to see why it is. But he writes about it. So I delight in weakness and insults and hardships and persecutions and difficulties, he says, for when I'm weak, then I'm strong. We also talked last week and skimmed through this in 2 Corinthians 1, 3 through 7, when I'm talking about how we should be in a posture of helping others, somebody on one of their cards wrote, should we even help other people when they're suffering? Isn't that what God wants them to go through? Should we help them? Hands off? What should we do? What's our posture supposed to be? Well, I said our posture should be humility first because we don't know what's going on. So maybe citing them a bunch of platitudes or telling them like, oh, this is just the devil messing with you. I mean, how do you know that? Might be God bringing them through it. Might be just his allowance. Might be his cause. We don't know. So, humility first. But yes, you can help. I mean, Paul in 2 Corinthians is talking about how, he says, just as the sufferings of Christ flow over into our lives, so also through Christ our comfort overflows. If we are distressed, it is for your comfort and salvation. If we are comforted, it's for your comfort which produces in you patient endurance the same suffering. We can stand together with them. We can empathize with others. In fact, we should. I don't see anything in Jesus' sayings, by the way, that says that we shouldn't help. In fact, I see just the opposite. Part of the suffering that's going on in the world is that we don't get involved 
and we don't help with suffering, and we stay behind the comfortable walls where we are. I, I think it goes without saying that you know how much suffering could probably be alleviated if we acted. I'm not saying we would eliminate it, but I believe there's a great part of it is in our hands. We're not acting. So here's kind of the way I want to end. Trying to put it all together. In Romans, Paul also says these words. And I put out these words because I think a lot of us, when suffering happens, we're shocked. We think we don't deserve it. And I think that's clearly not true. I think we all deserve it. Paul writes, summarizing, by the way, a number of Old Testament statements by the Lord. He kind of summarizes them and puts them together. He says, there is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands, no one who seeks God. All have turned away. They have together become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. Their throats are open graves. Their tongues practice deceit. The poison of vipers is on their lips. Their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Ruin and misery mark their ways, and the way of peace they do not know. There is no fear of God before their eyes. That's us. So I think that puts us in a very humble posture if we think about it. What should our response be to suffering in our own lives? I just kind of put this up here kind of as a the way I would think about it. If we deserve nothing apart from death and then judgment, that's what we deserve. If we cannot know when calamity will befall us, if we rarely understand why trouble has befallen us, if it is only by the grace of God that we have this moment of peace, then we should never take such grace for granted nor turn against God when such grace is withheld, but eagerly anticipate the good things the Lord has prepared for those that love him. That last part comes from this, where Paul says in 1 Corinthians 2.9, No eye has seen, no ear has heard, no mind has conceived what God has prepared for those who love him. And he's speaking directly about what is coming in the next life. So, humbly, I would submit that our response should kind of be this. I mean, I think it's important that we understand all the things that we've covered so far. You know me, I'm a person who would wrestle with intellect all the time and loves reading and researching and looking things up. I try to leave no stone unturned, but at the, some point, where we are right now, there also needs to be a spiritual response to suffering. And I think putting it in a context as to how and why all these pieces might fit in the sequence that I suggested leads us to this place right here. If that's all true, guys, the fact that we're in this room right now and that we're relatively okay is God's grace in our life. I want you to actually take a moment, close your eyes, and I want you just to focus for a second on the fact that you're breathing. That whatever is going on tomorrow, like if it's, a, if it's an exam or it's something at work that you don't want to do or if it's the fact that there isn't work or the fact that 
there's a problem at your house or whatever the thing is going on in your life for a second. The fact that we're alive and we're not in complete calamity is God's grace in our life. And we don't stop to think about the fact that we don't even deserve to have that. That but for his grace, that all of this place should be completely torn apart, that this earth that we live in, tainted by sin, should be a place that's just ruled by evil. And the fact that we truly don't know how much God does intervene when we don't even see it, how much worse this world could be with evil and disease than it already is. So just take a moment right now to just focus and thank God for the fact that we have relative peace in this moment and don't take that for granted. Think about how we could turn that for a moment into how we could help others who don't have that grace in their life right now.